It's time for episode 80 of Love That Album podcast. Once again, Morris is presenting an interview he did in 2001 while volunteering at Melbourne's public access radio station 3RRR. This time around, he speaks to jazz guitarist Bill Frussell. Bill has worked as a sideman or collaborator for many musicians such as Pat Metheny, Petra Hayden and Elvis Costello. He has also made many of his own jazz and country-influenced albums under his own name. He has written his own compositions but has also covered songs by Burt Bacharach and John Lennon in a style similar to no one else's using loops and guitar pedals to great effect. In conversation, Bill is humble about his accomplishments but even a casual listen to his body of work demonstrates he is truly one of the guitar greats. Eric Reanimator's Album I Love segment features the album English Garden by New Wave era performer Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club. Don't know that name? You sure as anything know one of their songs. Find out what it is in the segment. All this and more on Love That Album. listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to episode number 80 of Love That Album podcast. Glad to have your company. My name is Morris. And this time around, I'm going to be doing something like similar to what I did in episode 79. And that's present an interview that I did while I was still based, uh, well, part time, I guess I did graveyard shifts at Melbourne radio station 3RRR. And if I was a good boy, if I was really nice and well behaved and rolled up to my graveyard shifts on time, then I'd get the summer shift. Uh, which was quite nice, eight weeks of being able to play music for a few hours on a Sunday morning and even get some interviews. It was all lots of good fun back in the days of, I think, 1998, 1999, about two, three years I did that. And anyway, one of the interviews that I was really, really excited to have back at the time, this is in 2001, was with jazz guitar player Bill Frisell. Now, Bill is someone who I really can't remember the first time I ever heard his music. But I know that it was something that has always stuck with me. And uh, he's played on a lot of sessions. He's been a sideman for a lot of people, uh, including, as you'll hear in the interview, we speak a little bit about his work with Marianne Faithful and Elvis Costello. But he'd also played with Ginger Baker and Mark Johnson, uh, John Schofield, uh, and, and uh, you know, just a ton of people. You know, David Sanborn, Petra Hayden who's uh, also gone and made a name for herself nowadays more as a singer rather than just as a violin player. Uh, but uh, Bill Frisell is one of those musical stylists. You hear his playing and you straight away know that it's him, even if you don't know the music that 
is being played. It might be on a CD or a record at a friend's place, but you'll know straight away that it's built for sale. And I love those sorts of musicians who have a style all their own. They're real innovator, real creator. And that's as much to his love of effects uh, and effect pedals as well as his own pretty unique style of guitar playing. He works a lot with loops uh, and he has something of a of a vibrato that's really all Bill. You just know it's him. And uh, he started out recording records for uh, the German label ECM, and he fit very much in their mold and their style of uh, music that came out on those uh, great ECM recordings of uh, the, the 70s and, and the 80s. And uh, But after only a few albums, he moved over to uh, Nonsuch, which uh, is run, I think, by Warner Brothers. Uh, but he still continued to follow his own vision. He's made like a ton of great albums, some in more of a country sort of vein, but still country vein has filtered through the Bill Frisell sensibility. And he's made a ton of stuff. And he uh, recorded a few albums of new music for silent films of uh, Buster Keaton. And we speak a little bit about that in this interview. Now, this is the thing to remember. This interview is 14 years old and a lot of Stuff. He's recorded a lot of albums since then, and he's done a whole lot of music and concerts, which you know we can't even touch on because, well, as I said, this interview's uh, 14 years old. But there's still enough in there that I really thought uh, I was very proud of to have had a chat with him, and you would probably enjoy if uh, you're into uh, the music of Bill Frisell and into great guitar music and great jazz music in general. He's, he's as I said, a real stylist, and maybe you don't even need to be... Uh, fan of jazz to appreciate what Bill Frisell does. You probably need to have a little bit of a spirit of adventure, but uh, he's still, I find, really very accessible. He's not quite like listening to the music of John Zorn, who is also someone who I deeply, deeply love, and I think Frisell has recorded with John Zorn as well. Uh, it's experimental, but still very, very accessible in a lot of ways. Uh, I went to see him in Melbourne Oh, I can't remember, maybe it's about four or five years ago, came out for the Melbourne Jazz Festival, and it was quite a treat. He uh, had a really terrific band, and I think one of the numbers that he did on the night was uh, What the World Now, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love, the Burt Bacharach tune, but really as filtered through Bill Frisell's sensibilities, it comes out as something completely different to how uh, Bacharach had originally imagined it. And also in recent years, he's recorded an album of his favourite John Lennon tunes, both uh, as a Beatle and as a solo performer. And once again, you know, Frisell puts a very different spin on the music to how it would have sounded in John Lennon's, or indeed anyone else who's gone and covered a Lennon tune. So uh, if you haven't heard Frisell before, I urge you to go out and seek out some of his music. You know, probably a couple of good places to start would be uh, maybe an anthology that he recorded for ECM called Works. Uh, or you might want to sort of go through any of his non-such recordings. Gone Like a Train is a really fantastic album. We talk a little bit about that in this interview. Uh, but really, just search some of his music out, you know, either on YouTube or anywhere else. Or, you know, and, but go to a CD store or an album store, see if there's anything on vinyl, if you're that way inclined. But find his music any which way you can. Go buy something, because he, his music really does mean a lot to me. And I'm sure that if you're... Uh, uh, adventurous enough, then he'll, his music will mean something to you too. So uh, anyway, so that's the focus of this episode special. Uh, also, we'll be having Eric Reanimator doing his album I Love segment uh, after the Bill Frisell interview, and he's going to be talking about an album called English Garden by the band Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club. And there's a song in um, 
this on this album that I had no idea that it was not an original from the group who are most famous for putting that song out. It originated as part of Bruce Woolley's band, The Camera Club. Uh, so um, you'll really raise your ears when you hear what Eric says that song is and even plays you a little bit of it. It's, uh, it's a little bit different to the version that we all know and love. Let's just say a very, very big pop hit of uh, the early 80s. Uh, if uh, you, you know of Bruce Woolley, then maybe you've already guessed what the song is. But anyway, I'll let Eric uh, reveal that for you. Anyway, so uh, we'll get on with the show now. And uh, I'll um, speak to you again at the outro of the show to talk to you about uh, episode 81 coming up in September. Meanwhile, um, have a listen to my conversation with Bill Frisell. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wings Hauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsbeck. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. kitchen i have on the line from seattle washington jazz guitar player and bluegrass guitar player extraordinaire bill frisell good morning bill morning i suppose uh, i should start off with a very cliched old question but how did you get started as a guitar player in particular how did you get interested in uh, the jazz and bluegrass genres um oh boy i mean it's such a long you know i'm 50 years old now <laughs> i mean it really was pretty much the way it seemed like all my friends at the time, this is in the early 60s, it seemed like everyone played the guitar and, you know, by the time the, I remember watching the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and it seemed like that moment was like, that, that was a big moment for me. It, it sounds like it's a very common moment for musicians. Yeah, so it's not. I don't think it's that unusual a story. It's just kind of started out just doing it for fun with all my friends, and somehow I just stuck with it, mm. maybe longer than some of my friends, <laughs> I guess. 
a lot of jazz guitar players cite people like Wes Montgomery or, or Charlie Christian or Kenny Burrell as their early heroes and maybe even their continuing heroes. But stylistically, I'd say that you've probably come from another place and probably have a lot of non-guitar players as heroes. Would that be fair to say? Well, yeah, but actually those guys are huge. You know, Wes Montgomery for me was one of the biggest and Charlie Christian too and... Um, I think Wes Montgomery was maybe the first, he was kind of the beginning of my interest in jazz music. And But then hearing him and after getting more involved with whatever jazz is, I guess that's where I started listening much more to other instruments, you know, saxophone players and piano players. And um, then the guitar sort of receded into the background hmm. for a while, I think. As, as an influence, maybe. I imagine that as well from a lot of your music, which tends to have more of a darker side to it, that there's certainly some Miles Davis creeping in there. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he's still one of my biggest heroes of all time. I, I can always go back to his stuff and find something new or, or some kind of inspiration. Or He, he kind of, he still kind of sets the standard for me of just what's good music, you know. started out, as far as your recording career goes, working at ECM Records. ECM Records is certainly known and respected for, uh, I suppose, what's known as its type of sound, if you can sort of put it down to that. How did Manfred Eicher come to uh, invite you to play at ECM? Well, let's see. First, I actually met um, Eberhard Weber, the bass player. Right. That was really my introduction into the company. He he asked me to play on a record, and I'm, that was in 1978, and I met Manfred then. So, and I, I don't think I made much of an impression, you know, at the very beginning, but then a few years went by, and I met him again, and then it was like a lot of different things were sort of happening all at once. I was playing with Paul Motion's band, and then played more with Eberhard and it seemed like there was all kinds of recordings that just happened to be on that label all happened at the same time or something mm -hmm. and then he started using me for a lot of different things and then you got offered your own work I guess yeah and then toward the yeah just that was where I um, did my first recordings under my own name and that was actually where I also met Lee Townsend, who produces a lot of my records now, and he's my manager. He used to work for ECM, and there's a lot, still now, there's a lot of connections I have with with ECM, even though I'm not recording with them anymore. But. 
Dave Holland on your new album still records for ECM, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. So how fondly do you look back on those days? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, it was really a dream coming true for me. You know, just to... I mean, I remember a time when I never would have imagined that I'd ever even be able to make a record, you know, let, let alone do it on that label. And so it was really... No, I have really fond memories of it. One project that you undertook in the 90s was to score Buster Keaton films like Go West and One Week. Very recently, an Australian group called the Blue Grassy Knoll actually uh, did the same thing. Well, they've been doing it for a few years, but they did scores very recently for One Week in the Boat. They've long had Sherlock Jr. in their repertoire, but they did it in the bluegrass fashion. Uh, do you think that there's sort of one genre that suits these films more so than others for, um, for scoring those old type of films? Um... Oh, I don't know. That's what, what I think. There, it's open to a lot of different ways of looking at them. That, that's what I, I think. What attracted to me to it in the first place was it was so wide open, and you didn't associate the movie with some old score, old pre-existing score, or anything. It was kind of like an open book that you could do anything you wanted with so i don't know i don't know i mean i think there's a probably a thousand ways you could go about doing it well i suppose i wanted to know did you were you able to do any research on any existing scores that might have been used for those early films or or, or were the accompanists for those movies improvising at the time um the what i had was i forget the name of the i didn't really I had there, there was some music on the films that I had, but I actually turned it off. I did, I didn't want to be influenced by what was there before. Um, and now I can't even remember the name of the person that did the music, but but it was something again that it was done. I think it was done much later. It wasn't even a you know it wasn't something that Buster Keaton had chosen or anything. So. So in that way, I also felt like it was fair game, you know, to change it. And Were you happy with a lot of the response to the scores, and did people enjoy seeing these films in a new light? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did... It seemed like, yeah, we did a few concerts. We did one tour of Europe after this, where we got to do it quite often. And especially doing it live, um, it was—it's really a fantastic experience. Also, also to see the film on a big screen—it's really amazing. You know, now, now we get, we're so used to seeing stuff on on you know on a television or something. These, especially old films, sometimes you don't get the chance to see them in 
in a theater that often, so it was really cool to see these on the big screen, and it, it was it was fun. <laughs> Projects, acting, I suppose, as a, a lot of other musicians, side player, uh, as well as doing your own work. I suppose the first thing that attracted me to your music was the guitar work you'd done on the Strange Weather album for uh, Marianne Faithful. Um, oh, yeah. I, I was a big fan of the Deep Dead Blue CD, or I, I suppose that was more like a collaboration with Elvis Costello. First of all, tell me about your involvement with Marianne Faithful. Did her diversity attract you? Yeah. Uh, well, and again, she's actually goes back to, you know, back to that time when I first started playing the guitar. She was one of, you know, that's when she had that, um, the hit, uh, what's the name? Uh, As Time Goes By? I think. It, yeah, yeah. As Tears. As tears Go By, yeah. Um, so that was, I don't know, it was another one of those kind of dreamlike, thrilling things for me to um, get to play with someone that had been there when I was really first starting to get into music and um, that that project actually came about for me through this producer Hal Wilner who's I've done a lot of things with him and he's he's another kind of really important person in my just as far as the opportunities I've had and the I've done a lot of recordings with him um, that's where I actually met Elvis Costello was doing a Mingus tribute record and um, oh, I can't think of all the I've worked with Allen Ginsberg and uh, did this Nina Rota record with these are all Hal Wilner project yes William Burroughs, we did some recording for him. And so that, that was how I met Marianne. Certainly a very eclectic range of, uh, of, of, of associations there. Yeah. Will you take me across the channel? London Bridge is falling down. Stranger woman tries to say. What a man will try to drown and What's about uh, your association with Elvis Costello? You, you mentioned the uh, Mingus tribute, the concert that Deep Dead Blue was recorded for. For his own compositions on that CD, did he ask for a specific approach or did he just leave it in your hands? Well, well we just that was just... Uh a concert one set we recorded the whole thing and basically just put out the whole it was just one live set of music and where it was kind of interesting for me to you know being that it was just a duet um 
just guitar and voice um, and to take these songs that had been a lot of them associated with his band or that had been done with a much bigger kind of instrumentation and then try to distill it down to just the guitar it was kind of an interesting process and um, but that was one of those really quick it well there's the, there's the songs of his and then there's also one song that we wrote together which is that deep dead blue mm. it was part of a festival that he was um, programming the whole festival so he was doing all kinds of different performances with different people and he had invited me to do that and then I also did some other little bit of arrange, arranging for him and and then that sort of led to the um, Burt Bacharach Elvis Costello recording that we did later the sweetest punch where I arranged those songs for him Weird nightmare You haunt my every dream Weird nightmare Tell me what you scheme Can it be I just wanted to ask actually something about that album, given that a lot of retrospective type uh, new arrangements of things take place many years after the fact. How come it was that you decided so soon to basically work on, well, the, the one album Costello Bacharach songbook? And for that matter, what was it attracted you to just concentrate on that rather than, say, on doing a whole range of Elvis's material or Burt Bacharach, Hal David material? Oh, yeah, well, actually, that was what we recorded that what was really interesting about that but it kind of it became confused because of all this record company confusion and all this corporate takeover stuff that was going on but we recorded the sweetest punch at the same time as elvis and bert recorded um painted from memory i don't know if and sometimes that but it didn't the record wasn't released until a couple years later so I hadn't even heard that their record they just they gave me the demo tapes of the original songs and Bert gave me these piano scores and then I did the arrangements so it was it was really kind of a fascinating idea that they were going to do this they were in Hollywood doing their record, and I was in New York doing my version of the same songs at the same time. But then there was this big... And they originally they were planned to come out at the same time. And then there was one of these, whatever happened, some company bought some other company, and my record sort of got lost in the shuffle there and didn't come out for, I guess it was at least a year later, so it kind of lost some of the original intent. But you were happy with the overall result? 
Yeah, yeah. It was a kind of an amazing experience for me to be able to work on those songs before I had even heard what what they were going to do with them. You know what I mean? It was it was pretty wild, like kind of once in a lifetime opportunity. to ask some stuff about uh, your new album. You've had two albums out this year. First of all, Blues Dream, and secondly, your uh, collaboration with Dave Holland and Elvin Jones. You were mentioning before, I suppose, your awe of being able to work with or listen to some of your heroes, so I imagine you would have been um, absolutely in ecstasy working with Elvin Jones. That was something I just never... I still can't believe it even happened, you know? How did he come to get involved? Um... Well, the, I have a, a good friend of mine, Michael Shreve. He's the, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was the original drummer in Santana, and he's he lives here in Seattle, and we play together often, and he's a close friend of Elvin's, and he's actually known Elvin since he was a young kid, and he's been writing a biography on Elvin, and somehow got it in his mind that I should play with Elvin. And he, one day he said to me, you know, Bill, you ought to play with Elvin. I'm thinking, yeah, right, you know, like that's ever going to happen, you know. But somehow Michael was able to connect it up, and we did it. Was Elvin aware of your work? I'm not even really sure. I don't think he really knew of me at all. But, and I was, you know, I was so nervous. I'd I'd met him once a long time ago, but just very briefly, you know, shaking his hand. But I don't think he really knew me. So I was worried how he would respond to the music, or I didn't know what he would think, you know. But as soon as we got together in the studio, he was just like, just incredible um, spirit and enthusiasm and you just it was just an amazing experience for me yeah he it seemed like he was having a good time so I hope that comes through on the recording albums where you like to re-record certain tracks done in 
different arrangements for each album. And uh, one example that comes to my mind is, is a track that appears on both of your albums of this year, um, talking about the, the tune called Outlaws. And each right. each track sounds cinematic in their intent. But I listened to the version on Blue's Dream, and it sounds like it could have been written for a Western. And the version on um, on the uh, Holland Jones collaboration sounds like it could have been written for a film noir. Is this something that you intended, or is this just my interpretation? Oh, I think it's just, yeah, I don't really plan that stuff out. You know, when I write, or even when, I, when I'm when i playing what I write, I'm not really thinking about what it means or what kind of visual thing might happen. It seems like it's always after the fact that someone comes up to me and says, you know, this sounds like this or it sounds like that. But I don't really think about it so much. I just kind of just try to play the music and try to, you know, I, I enjoy playing the same, you know, sticking with one song for a while and trying to get as much out of it or, or play, you know, I, on a gig, I, I try to play the songs differently every night. And so I guess that's why I have that tendency to, record them more than once sometimes is it due to a result of dissatisfaction with an earlier version or do you just sort of think you can add new color and texture to it yeah it's more just trying to find it's not that i'm dissatisfied it's more just to see where it can go next or try to find something new with it artwork for uh, your new CD, the Holland Jones collaboration, and also um, the artwork for Gone Just Like a Train. Uh, the artist is a guy called Jim Woodring. Tell us a little bit about him. Right. Yeah, he's a <coughs> incredible cartoonist artist. He, he has a whole bunch of cartoon books out, and I met him here in Seattle. Actually, our, our kids went to the same school. That's how I met him, and we connected that way and then I discovered his work and he's got some amazing stuff he has a cartoon a comic book called Frank and another one called Jim um, I don't know if it's available it should be available that underground comic thing to the first thing I sort of thought of when I saw the covers was uh, Yellow Submarine actually Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I never thought about that, but that makes sense. As long as we're on the uh, animation and artist line, uh, tell us about your association with Gary Larson and how you came to compose the music for his two animated specials. Yeah, that's that's another Seattle guy. There's a lot of cartoonists that live in Seattle. Um, and Gary I actually met through Jim Hall, 
Gary's a guitar player, and I went one night to hear Jim Hall play, and Jim said, here's Gary Larson, you know, another. So we, we used to get to, get, or we still do. I first met, you know, knew Gary more as we would just get together and play tunes and stuff, and then a couple years go by, and he was getting ready to do this film, and he asked me to do the music for it. But he's a pretty active musician as well as being a cartoonist, too. Is that what he's doing nowadays at the far side's gone into retirement? He, yeah, I mean, he just plays all... He doesn't do really gigs, but he every day he practices a lot and plays a lot. you about uh, there's um, a document that has done the rounds of uh, the internet a fair bit that uh, was written by Pat Metheny his thoughts about what he described as the musical necrophilia committed by uh, Kenny G by overdubbing himself on uh, on Louis Armstrong song oh, right. what were your thoughts and Kenny G's shortcomings notwithstanding do you think it's uh, valid artistically to do what he actually did by overdubbing something new onto something old or, or should should those things be considered sacred cows um well you know i actually i <laughs> this is i sort of struggle with that a little bit because i did the same thing uh, it was on a film soundtrack there's a film finding forester yes that i did some music for and they also used miles davis's music and there's some places on the film score where I'm playing along with Miles Davis, you know. And so it's kind of the same thing that Pat was talking about, I guess. That's And I was wondering, I don't know if it's okay. I don't know. It's To me, it felt like a good musical thing to do. And, um, you know, that was really for the film. I, you know, I, would, I don't think I would go take a Miles Davis record and add my guitar to the whole thing or anything like that but um i guess in this one case it was okay for me but yeah i don't know i don't know what to think about it, it, the whole way music is made has changed so much in the well just in the in the century that there was recorded music you know it's, it's so confusing what to think of with samples and Things can be, with the computer and everything, can be manipulated so drastically. Because I, I don't think, you know, we have to be ready to change and move ahead and try new things, you know. But uh, I think it, it all comes out in the what you end up with, if it's good or bad. And if Kenny G had done something that was that Pat Metheny really liked, then maybe it would have been a different story.
I suppose as long as we're uh, on the subject of Pat Metheny, tell us about uh, your collaboration with him on the Mark Johnson album a few years ago, because I don't think you'd actually worked with him in your time at ECM. No, but I'd known him for a really, really long time. Um, I met him when I first went to school in Boston in 1975, and, you know, there, we had played together a little bit there, and he he had always been a big supporter of mine. You know, he's always helped me out whenever he can, and we talked about playing for a long, long time, and so that was great to finally have that chance, and it was really fun to play with him. He uses uh, an instrument on the album on one particular track, The Adventures of Max and Ben, I think it is, uh, with uh, a, a 42-string Picasso guitar, uh, it mentions That's in the credits. Amazing. What's that? It's like a sort of a... There's a guitar sort of in the center of the whole thing, but then it's there's all these other strings going every which way, you know. I, I don't have any idea how it's all... how he tunes it or what's going on but so i mean he can play normal guitar on it but then there's all these other um open strings he can use like droning strings or sympathetic strings and all this um, it's an amazing looking thing you know it looks kind of like a picasso drawing of a guitar like something all kind of broken and fragmented and stuff I suppose I should close off with asking, what is it that you're listening to at the moment? Oh, boy. It's always, I don't know, what does this... I guess I've been listening to a lot of music from Mali in Africa. This, um, I'm trying to think. This, somehow I latched on to that one country and been listening to a lot of people from there. There's a guitar player, Bubakar Traore, I've been listening to, or... Um, Omu Sangare, a singer, um, Ali Farkaturi, another guitar player from there. Mm-hmm. Um, been listening to a lot of that, and, oh, I don't know, I mean, even the other day I was listening to some Mozart piano concerto thing that I really liked, and, or, uh, oh boy. Oh, I hate to put you on the spot. There's so much stuff. <laughs> The Beatles. I just heard a little bit of this Beatles anthology thing that I had never, I hadn't actually heard it before, where they have a lot of the original tracks from the records, but without the overdubs on them. And I, I heard some of that the other day, and I got all excited about 
that. I want to go buy that. What did you think of um, George Harrison's original, very, very sparse version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps? Oh, yeah, I did hear that. Um, yeah, it's just beautiful, just amazing. Mm. It was uh, quite a shock for all of us, I suppose, a week ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we all knew he was sick and everything, but then it's that was a bad one. All right. Look, many thanks for uh, your time this morning, Bill. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, I, I hope that uh, we can uh, see you come and perform in Australia sometime in the near future. Any plans for I that? I hope so. I've still never been there, so I'm hoping... I hope I can get there soon. <laughs> well, there'll certainly be uh, a lot of jazz fans out here who'll be uh, very willing and very happy to uh, see you perform here in any guise that you choose, band or solo. Oh, great. Well, thanks a lot.
Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two. I want two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. another album that I love. This time around we're going to be covering the 1979 record from Bruce Willie and the Camera Club that is just self-titled. You know, I know Morris is covering uh, Bill Frizzell, which is kind of a uh, odd, jazzy rock thing. And uh, Bruce Willie and the Camera Club are also one of those kind of weird avant-garde yet pop and uh, you might not know the name, but you're definitely going to know some of the people that were in this band. If you don't know the people in the band, you're definitely going to know what turned out to be the uh, biggest song on this album. So, uh, in 1979, 1978, uh, Bruce Lee formed the Camera Club, which was his kind of new wave music outfit. Although, new wave tag, as we have discussed on uh, the show before and my compilation segments is not really uh, a tag for anything and there was a lot of retro music being filtered through modern technology that got tagged as new wave anyways uh, camera club uh, released their first album 1979 and toured for about two years until disbanding after cbs records refused to release their second album among the members of the band was a young thomas dolby on keyboards and the album also contains songs that were co-written with Jeff Downs of later of Yes and Trevor Horn, also I believe later of Yes, were more famous as the Buggles. Uh, Bruce Willie did work with those two and uh, helped write Video Killed the Radio Star and the song Clean Clean, both of which are appear on this album. He was never a member of the Buggles, but according to Wikipedia, he was in his own words merely on the design team. Let's take a listen. Clean, clean, 
what I like about this album is that there's a retro futurism that is uh, very much a 1970s construct. By that, I guess I mean that using the filter of the 1970s, looking back at the 30s, 40s, 50s, so you get some of that pop sensibility and some of that early rock and roll, but there's also some of the drama of the uh, kind of operatic pop stuff that had come before. And uh, the imagery, if, if you can look up the album cover for this, it's really got a great cover that, that evokes 1930s, 1940s science fiction pulp novels. Definitely a song like Clean Clean, which uh, the Buggles did as this perfectly sterile kind of techno pop takes on a different resonance when you hear it in this kind of rock and power pop context. I think it's a great song. I think it's a great song that people don't know from from either this album or from the Buggles. So the big one on here, of course, is Video Killed the Radio Star. And this was, in fact, the first version to come out, making the Buggles version a cover, even though it was co-written by the main members of the Buggles. The take on it on this album is different, but I think it shows that that's one of the great songs of that era, not only because it kind of nails the subject of we're moving from a time of voice and substance into this time of glam and image being more important than the music, and I think I've heard it in different different genres. I think there's a great country cover of it out there, and I think that it shows that the song is malleable, that it works in uh, different settings. So, without further ado, I'm going to cut this one a little bit short. Uh, Bruce Williams' Camera Club, great record, it's worth seeking out. But uh, what he's going to always be known for is having been the co-writer of Video Killed the Radio Star. So, let's hear his version. Uh, Everyone enjoy your summer and we'll catch you all later. Here we are at the end of another episode of Love That Album Podcast. Thanks very much for having listened to it. It was certainly a bit of a spin for me to go back and listen to that interview of, well, 14 years ago. The content might be uh, quite a few years old, but I still think it was well worth my while to put up as a Love That Album Podcast. As I said, I hope that you got something out of it. 
and uh, certainly evoked a whole lot of memories for me to re-listen to it and edit it into this show for y'all. So here we are, it's uh, the end of another show and episode 81 will be out sometime in the middle of September as well as another episode from Eric Reanimator of his compilation albums edition of the program. So two episodes in September rather than the three or so that you've had over July and August. We'll get back to normal from uh, September onwards. So September, I'm not going to be covering a particular album. Uh, In previous years, we've done at least two specials over the year of what I like to dub the Shooting the Shit Crew. And that's just basically where... Uh, myself and a few other of uh, my regular presenters on the program get together and we have a bit of a round table over you know one or two issues in music that might be disturbing us or distressing us or just something that's been on our mind and we'd love it if you decided to um, send us in some feedback and give us uh, your thoughts about any particular music issues maybe we'll bring those to the round table not quite sure what it is that we're going to discuss it but hey we might just go by the seat of our pants it could be very exciting to just sort of not have anything terribly planned that's what these conversations should be about we tend to do a thing at the end of the year as well where we talk about our favorite albums of the year but this is just going to be a little bit more freeform nothing particularly planned so uh, we'll see where we go with that but they're always good fun to do so sometime in october i'll have picked an album or whoever i have as my guest will have picked an album for us to discuss or get back to the regular format of the show but i'm hoping that you've been enjoying the programs of the last couple of months and uh, the show that we'll put out in september with the shooting the shit crew until then Please listen to some great music, watch wonderful films, read great books, and generally be nice to each other. And, of course, listen to a lot of podcasts. And if you'd be so kind as to spread the word about Love That Album and also the other podcasts I'm associated with, see here, well, I'd just be so very, very appreciative. Thank you so much. All right, we'll speak to you in a few weeks. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.